Welcome back to another edition of Intelligence. Uh, I'm your host, Brennan Dunn. Today we got some really special guests coming on the show. That, um, I'm really excited about. I'm just going to jump right in this because there's too much for us to talk about. Um, first and foremost, we have Mr. Kyle Ludovic. Kyle Ludovic. Ludovic. You know what? We practiced this earlier and I still got <laughs> uh, Kyle Ludovic. He's a third year law student over at South Texas College of Law. Uh, also a libertarian and conservative, which we will talk about and have you guys discuss in just a moment. We've got our main man, Dr. Rod Singleton, over here. How are you, How are you Rod? I'm doing well. Man. Good, good. Criminal defense attorney to the stars, Damon Parrish. Hello, I'm here. And tech savant, Charles Sherrod Jr. And last but not least, we have, excuse me, Daniel Krause, correct? That's right. All right, so I got one right. One out of two ain't bad. So uh, Daniel is also a libertarian conservative. And guys, um, we're going to talk about that in just a second. I want to do the rundown of what we're going to be discussing today. Uh, we're going to be talking about the NFL issues uh, as it relates to the national anthem and grievances that have been filed. Uh, what it means to be uh, black in America and how that interplays with crime in America, uh, police accountability. We're also going to be talking about immigration uh, here in America and, and what issues arise on both parties. Um, and the dangers of white 911 calls. So that should be uh, really exciting for us. Uh, so before we get started, <clears throat> so everybody knows exactly what you, Kyle, and what you, Daniel, stand for in terms of political views, uh, go ahead and give us a spiel on what that means. I'll, I'll go ahead and take the first bite at it. This um, So libertarianism is, uh, I feel like a lot pe more people are libertarians than they, they realize. Yeah. Um, uh, the general idea is that we are socially liberal and we are economically conservative. The idea is to get government out of our lives as much as possible and let people live as free of a life as they possibly can. Because you know, when we talk about everything from you know taxes to your everyday interaction with government, whether it be police or it's the post office and the absolute madhouse that that could possibly be, or any other interaction that you could possibly think of from the municipal level to all the way up to uh, everything in Washington, D.C., it almost seems like government permeates every aspect of our life. And the goal of libertarianism and classical liberalism is to, to uh, <clears throat> bring that back down to what our founders originally wanted the, the state to be. And the original purpose of the state is to protect freedom and allow people to pursue their ideas and dreams in the most efficient way that they can. Okay, so <clears throat> small government, um, conservative on fiscal issues, and liberal on social issues, mm -hmm. essentially. Is, and you, would not, you agree not that? necessarily so much small government. I mean, really, the the thing that sets libertarians apart is that they want to maximize individual freedom on all fronts. And yeah, that is you know uh, socially uh, liberal and fiscally conservative because that offers uh, the most freedom to individuals in the you know social and economic arenas. Um, I think that. Uh, yeah, like that. That's pretty much Kyle. Pretty much nailed it on the head. But you know, it's it's not necessarily about uh, uh, state government versus federal government or anything like that. Uh, as long as the individual is protected, that's what seems most important. So before we get into our first topic, I want to ask you this because you you say that a lot more people are probably um, more uh, libertarian at heart. How does libertarianism play uh, juxtapose with conservatism? Well, li like I said, uh, they do intersect uh, in economic issues. Uh, they both encourage uh, fiscal responsibility, and they 
uh, don't like government spending. They think taxation is is wrong. Um, libertarians, more at a moral level, they or they, uh, you know, repeat like a moral arguments against taxation more than conservatives. I would say, um, but that that's the crossover point for conservatives and uh, libertarians. Definitely um, not so much on social issues. Um, How do the two coexist then? Because you, I mean, you, you've kind of hitched your wagon to the conservative. Uh, party in terms of what you guys do. So, you know, when it comes to the social issues, do you not see yourselves kind of uh, uh, butting heads? I think um, that the GOP, you know, it's known as your stereotypical white guy. I mean, that's what the GOP has been known for for a, a very long time. But the the younger Republicans are becoming more socially liberal. They're looking at things like weed or maybe even prostitution, or the issue regarding police brutality. And they're like, all of these things are wrong. And you know, you have the, you know, classic old white, you know, love your country, support the police type guy. And the, the younger person has the ability to, or more so, uh, has the ability to look at these issues and be like, what, what this is, is wrong. So the younger generation is changing the Republican Party for for the better, especially in regard to social issues. So the GOP is either going to have to move a little bit more left on these issues, or they're going to die. All right, well, fair enough. So we're about to jump into this, fellas. Uh, we've got a good hour to to treat each other like friends and enemies simultaneously. Um, first thing we're going to talk about is the NFL. Recently, the NFL, over the last couple of months, put out an edict to their players saying, hey, you either, you have an ultimatum. Based off of last year's performances uh, before the games, a lot, of, a lot of cats were kneeling. NFL didn't like it. President of the United States didn't like it. So they implemented some new uh, strategies saying that if you decide that you don't want to be a part of the national anthem, you have the choice of either standing there or you have the choice of going back into the locker room uh, pregame during the national anthem. If you decide for whatever reason that you would like to violate that particular uh, procedure, then we will either fine you or we will suspend you or we may even do both. The NFLPA, the National Football uh, League Player Association, filed a grievance saying, well, hey, this is unconstitutional. Uh, we feel like this is outside of the bounds of what's considered to be a detrimental conduct, so this shouldn't even be here. Just recently, they have agreed to a almost a ceasefire on this particular issue so they can try to hash it out. Let's start off with the question of, do you feel that there is merit to the argument that players should stand at attention in what, or stand with respect during the national anthem? I don't want them to feel uh, uh, isolated on this one. So I'll say, whether they should stand or not, I don't think you have a First Amendment right to private action. So if the, you sign a contract to play with the NFL, they govern what you wear in the form of your jersey. They govern your pants, what you can put on your pants. They govern the shoes you wear. You can't wear certain color shoes or, shoes or certain types of shoes that aren't approved by the NFL or a color scheme that doesn't match. Brandon Marshall uh, had that issue last year when he wore shoes to... Uh, promote his uh, charity for mental illness and he got fined for wearing those shoes and it, was just, it was just a color promotion that's all it was so you don't have a first amendment right now whether or not you should is different they don't so if the NFL wants to say you must stand up just like the NBA 
and you must stand up. So I'm going to disagree with that, but I'm going to let some others speak before I jump in on this. So, so you asked about whether there was merit to... I, I'm, I'm a, could you repeat that question? You asked if... Sure. Uh, first, the first part of this discussion deals with um, the the merit of standing or having showing respect during the national anthem because some people have, have uh, espoused that they believe that it's disrespectful not to stand for the national anthem or conversely it's disrespectful to kneel during the during the national anthem well i think that you know really hits the nail on the head it's that you know uh, is there merit in it some people say that there is some people say that there isn't um, but if the nfl is a business and really if it's putting on a performance for viewers to watch and uh, the athletes are performers then you would expect that if they are getting pushed back because of what performers are doing they would want to alter what their performers are allowed to do uh, in order to uh, make their viewership happy and you talk about the standstill you know if there's a lot of pushback uh, from a change they make like that like finding uh, teams for when their uh, players kneel during the national anthem. If there is public pushback, then you probably will see stalemates and you will see them back down. But the underlying principle is that the, the market will always reflect what uh, society wants. So my problem with, with that statement that you said that if with a business there is pushback by the patronage, then the business should, should um, alter what they're doing for the sake of the patrons, is that in this particular instance, and in some other instances, if something is wrong, uh, socially wrong, or what society would deem to be uh, so socially wrong, I don't think that just because a business has patronage, we should infringe upon the rights of others in, uh, in appealing to the better nature of the people that, that, that uh, buy into that business. Because you gotta remember, there are people on both sides, I hate to use this term, on both sides of that. Uh, there are those who agree, and then there, there are patrons who also disagree. So which side should you really be you know, kowtowing towards? In this particular instance, and going back to what Damon talked about in terms of the question of First Amendment rights, I disagree for a couple of reasons. Number one, because I believe that it is, it is true that the First Amendment is reflective of, of a rule to ensure that the government uh, does not infringe upon free speech. However, in the case of the NFL, I believe that the NFL is so intertwined with the government that an argument can be made that First Amendment is protected as it pertains to it. You have, I mean, there's a large majority, there's a large portion of NFL monies that come from government subsidiaries, number one. Number two, the President of the United States has, to me, so much so injected himself into what goes on that it can be argued that um, the government has now pressured the NFL into taking a certain stance. So if there's that kind of government pressure all the way from the top, then I think that you have an issue there. Number three, just because the, the national government doesn't have a uh, protection for businesses in terms of First Amendment rights, states have those, have those particular rights. Uh, every state constitution mirrors and reflects the national constitution, and many states actually have uh, First Amendment uh, protections as it pertains to both government and business. So I think that, yes, yes they do. So I disagree with you on most, all of your points. <coughs> so per use. Yeah, per use, right. <laughs> so I think what's easy to conflate here is support for the cause itself, and then it's a separate issue 
of whether these private entities have the right to control their product and aim their product at the, at the market that they've deemed to be what's in their benefit. Uh, again, when you use the example of Donald Trump being inextricably uh, entwined with the, with, the government, with the NFL, I think that's a, that's a very slippery slope because if you're saying that, the president must always keep his mouth closed because anytime any president says something or gives an opinion that could affect the market in some way, you can make the similar argument. If Barack Obama was to have said something with respect to you know, the, the protests, if he had been the president, you can argue that that was, would inf influence the NFL's decision, but, but in, the, in the direction of what you desire. So I think that you're all, uh, we all agree that the protest is, is, is correct. We agree in the cause, but a private institution has the right to determine what their product is going to be. So I think the NFL has that right. Absolutely. Yeah, no. I have to kind of echo Davis' statements, right? Everything in the NFL is regulated down to the length of your socks, the color of your socks, what you can do in the end zone when you score. Like, everything is regulated. It is entertainment. It's a packaged offering for entertainment for people. And anything that takes away from that, whether it be something that I agree with or not, right? If it's just, if it's just somebody kneeling and saying, you know what, I'm kneeling for uh, police brutality or I'm, kneeling, or I'm kneeling to protest, you know, something that I agree with, I might feel in my heart, yeah, that's a really good cause. But what if it was somebody protesting something that I thought was asinine, mm -hmm. right? It's the same It's the same thing. If somebody was like, you know what, F Black Lives Matter. I'm, I'm kneeling and protesting because I think, you know, dog lives matter, whatever it is. I mean, but you, dogs but lives you take, do matter, Charles. To some people, dogs lives to, to do some matter. People. But what I'm saying is, just like any other business, something that takes away from the bottom line. I mean, if I'm a business owner, I'm eliminating anything that takes away from my bottom line. Well, who's, whose bottom line is more important? Because you have just as many people that are black patrons, and, and, my, and let me not just specify black, but you have minority patrons that believe in the cause of kneeling during the anthem. So you're saying that one particular group's um, being affronted by it is more important than the other uh, patrons' group that's, being affronted by it. That's, that's not what you're saying. No, I'm not saying it's being affronted by it. I'm saying that anything, whether it's something that people will publicly laud as being great, anything that takes away from the patrons looking at my entertainment and saying, this is what I want to see, the action that goes on on the field, then I need to eliminate that to make it more about the product on the field than I do about any other issues. It's, it's, out of, it's, it's, under, it's not under my control anymore, and I think it leads to something that's a slippery slope. You can have, you can have people come out with any myriad of things and be like, well, I believe in this. You know, I, I believe we should be able to marry five women at a time. I'm going to protest that. I mean, like, I mean, I don't see anything wrong or, with uh, <laughs> lo loving who you love. Or, or, but but hold on flip, once. They can flip to something that you don't support. They can believe in Holocaust not being real. And so they can come out with that, and, and they can have that situation, which we all agree is stupid last night. You know, NFL is not a platform for First Amendment speech. It's a platform but, but, to play games. It's a product. So, so you, it's not a First Amendment platform. So, Kyle, I want to ask you this question. What, in your opinion, is the issue with kneeling during the national anthem, or do you see it to be an issue? I think there's really an issue of, of PR, and you have a conundrum of people that, that do think that it's a worthwhile cause, but you also have people that don't think it's a worthwhile cause. And I think the NFL and the NFL's best interest will ultimately always be their pocketbook. Because if the NFL's pocketbook goes away, they don't have a product anymore at all. So if you don't play to the money, then you ultimately your product will fail. But do you see a problem with kneeling just, just on, its, on its face? I, do, I personally do not see a, a, an issue with kneeling, but I do, um, 
I see where others might find it uh, offensive or somehow. I Explain, because we have somebody who just... Um, who just commented, Kevin Farmer said, what about the armed forces paying of the NFL for patriotic stances? So explain, if you can, and I don't know if you want to since you're saying that's, that's not your particular stance, explain to us what that other side is. Well, I, I think what Kevin is referring to here is the idea that uh, the NFL has received money from the United States military uh, for a variety of their patriotic showings uh, throughout a lot of the games, whether it's the jet flyovers, or it's the giant flag on the field. There's a variety of different ways um, that the, the military has uh, given the NFL money specifically for this purpose. Now, I don't think that's a good use of government dollars. Of course not. <laughs> like, of course not. <laughs> well, it's, it's government advertising. I don't know why the government needs to, to advertise for anything. Damon, you and, look perplexed, and, and, perplexed by that. I think it was probably a business move by the NFL to be like, oh, hey, we support the military. But it, at the end of the day, I think it was it was ultimately the military, you know, getting you know the good press from the NFL, like with the NFL believing in so-called patriotism via the military. But I don't think that's a, a, a worthwhile use of, of taxpayers' dollars. Damien, you look perplexed. What's what's up? Yeah, so I, I, I agree with some of what you said. The telling of it, I disagree with. Uh, you know, the military always advertises because they need recruitment. Mm -hmm. I and mean, they always recruit. Is it in you? I mean, one, be all you can be. Catchphrases we know all of our life. They recruit. So this is part of their recruitment effort. Also, every brand, be it government or private, wants to look good. And it wants to be and appear successful. Patriotism is great. I mean, a country, you know, unique patriots of the country. Too much patriotism is a bad thing. Too little patriotism is a bad thing. So for the, the military's goal is to get as much patriotism as possible. They are fighting against those who want to take it away from them. Uh, and so to have the, 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 the number one sports venue every Thursday, Saturday, uh, Sunday, and Monday spend five minutes promoting America, especially during a, a war. So during the time where we're in war, war, whether you want to call it a war or not, justifiable or not, in a war, and I, I can't say it's not money well spent. Well, we don't have to spend our money on bombs and airplanes. Let me, let me, I just want to jump in because I think that the advertising angle is very important because tying patriotism to sports in that way gives you exactly what you want from advertising. It's eliciting an emotional response from somebody whenever they think about the thing. So when you think about sports, how, how, how palpable is it for people to be super involved in sports growing up? You got kids that grow up playing football. They want to be in the NFL. If I can't be in the NFL, what's another team that I could join that I could be a part of that wears a uniform that fights, that is aggressive, that is like all of those things embody the same the same ideals that the military would like mm -hmm. you to believe when you become a part of those. So so linking those things is important for them. All right, so let, let's amp this up to the uh, to the next topic. We're, we're going to get more and more um, involved per topic. So the next one I want to talk about, and you guys actually uh, requested this be part of the discussion today is uh, immigration in America. We obviously are in a contentious time right now with immigration in terms of how we treat immigrants, who we boot out, who we let in, and the process by which immigration is uh, realized. Currently, the uh, president was just vindicated by the Supreme Court uh, in as much as the Supreme Court said, hey, if he wants to ban uh, these, these particular Muslim countries, we're going to allow him. 
the lower federal court said, well, we think that this is outside of the bounds of the, uh, the power of the president, one, and that the basis for which he gave those bans, or um, he, he administered those bans, had racial, racist overtones to them, or discriminatory overtones to them. The Supreme Court said, hey, as commander-in-chief, he's allowed to do what he wants to for the sake of the protection of the country. Um, Justice Sotomayor and uh, Justice Ginsburg gave this scathing uh, dissent saying, look, if it, if it talks like a duck, quacks like a duck, walks like a duck, it is racism and it is discrimination. When the president uh, made certain comments before putting out that edict, they were discriminatory in, 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 in nature and his actions were predicated on those discriminatory thoughts. Are we at a point right now where the, where the government is doing the right thing in how they are proceeding with immigration? That's a, yeah. I, I know, I just, 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 I think we need to go into this conversation with the premise that our immigration system has some serious flaws and that there are some, some very large discrepancies of, of how we treat immigrants, of how we uh, go through the, the bureaucratic process of how we come, uh, how people become citizens. And I, it, I, it, you almost can't even get to the problem because the problem lies with the process itself. And um, so, uh, for example, I think you know if the the idea of immigration is you want to take you want to bring people in that will contribute to your economy and contribute to your country. If we wanted to go to Germany and we wanted to get the best brain surgeon in the world and you know fast track him through our system, we should be able to do that. We need to have incentives and a, a more streamlined immigration process to be like, okay, well, what are your qualifications? What will you, what will you bring to our country? What will make our country greater if we let you in? But, you, but, but the president has said the, the people that are coming in are rapists, murderers, and, and for lack of a better term, scoundrels coming in. Without, and he made it a carte blanche statement, which to me is not demonstrative of the people that are actually coming in by the, in droves to America. So... So this issue highlights one of my issues with libertarianism because I know a lot about libertarianism. I actually was thinking of supporting Ron Paul in 2012. Um, but one of the things about libertarianism that I find problematic is that it's not, it doesn't seem to hold up in the political arena uh, with the real-time real pressure. For instance, your stance on immigration from the liberal, from your website, your platform itself says that immigration, immigrants should be welcome to the country as long as they're peaceful. But now you have members who are prominent libertarians like Rand Paul himself who are now entraining himself with the conservative fervor against uh, immigration now, joining that kind of cry, now saying that, oh, all these terms and conditions, and kind of co-opted the whole libertarian, you know, position on this. So my thing is, how does libertarianism, uh, what's unique about libertarianism with respect to this immigration issue? Well, the unique thing about libertarianism is that under the libertarian umbrella, you can get so many divergent viewpoints. And I think there's a libertarian argument to be made uh, in support of and, you know, sort of against immigration. Um, as it says on the Libertarian Party's platform on their website, they believe in, you know, that the, in the free movement of people, that it shouldn't be restricted. And uh, I think that um, at a base level, like the, the political theory, I think that's true. Um, I do think, though, that there are some who are concerned that, um, like, what, what, what it entails when immigrants come. Like, you know, if you look at a time like the... 1840s in California during the gold rush. People are coming from all over the world uh, for the opportunity to, to get gold. Um, but, and the, the United States, especially a territory like California at the time, didn't have anything in the way of a welfare state. 
And so I think that there is a concern now among people who, where if, if you're paying into a system and uh, the state is not just um, a state that guarantees, you know, equality of, of opportunity or, you know, uh, gives you like uh, what are called negative rights, you know, like stops people from aggressing against right. you. If it's not just that, if it's for a welfare state that people are paying into, they worry that those coming to receive the benefits won't be paying out. And it seems unfair to those people. And um, the, like, most libertarians don't think that there should be a very big welfare state, but, you know, you could kind of see the libertarian argument that, well, if, you know, we're paying into it, shouldn't it be equal? Like, should we dish out more for other people who aren't putting into the system? Man, so you, you hit on a lot of issues there. You, you jumped into welfare, which is a whole nother issue. <laughs> well, but because but, if, if you have a, a, a system that uses uh, taxation and then provides government services, people are paying in, and, and you can call it a welfare state, and that's to varying degrees. You know, any any type of government services, you know, could be considered part of a welfare state. We're going we're gonna to touch back on that welfare, welfare portion in a little bit, but Dan, I know you have something to say, and I'm going to piggyback. Yeah. So uh, to answer your question about immigration, it, I think the problem with immigration, as viewed upon, is not those tier one people. So right now in this country, if you are considered a celebrity or some sort of like a brain surgeon, heart surgeon, no matter where you come, you can come to this country no problem. They have visas for you that says, hey, we recognize you as the best, you come here right now. You don't have to be rich. I know a guy who was in Mexico, a, he was an expert boot maker. He just made really good boots. And obviously, like, that's great for the South, but he's not saving anybody's lives. He got, he, with his immigration attorney, he came, up, came to the country with that top-tier visa. I think it's like an H-1, or maybe it's an A-1, I'm not for sure. Um, the problem lies not with the absolute best, but with the everyday man. When the everyday man from another country that has no criminal issue just wants to come and work. And there's no problem with that. And that's where you see a backlog. And I think that's where, when you try to have a system predicated on um, abilities of being the best without inclusion of the everyday man, you lose. This country needs more everyday men. Mm. We can't consist solely of brain surgeons and, and, and that kind of stuff. We need regular people. That, that's my first one. And, and to my second one, uh, you mentioned the welfare state. There is more ways to contribute to a, 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 a state and economy and a government than paying taxes. When you work and you help generate profits, you contribute to it. Uh, I, I think the idea that you have to pay taxes to get from the government, I, I understand that. And if you do nothing, then you should probably get nothing. But if you contribute in some way, if you're out working the fields that nobody wants to work, if you're doing a jo the job nobody wants to do, and you contribute to the economy, you should be able to get something from the government if need be. So it's interesting because uh, Kevin Plowden actually kind of kind of speaks to a little bit, touches on a little bit of what you spoke to. He says, why should the goal of immigration be to bring in people who will immediately contribute to society and the economy? What about bringing in people from poverty-stricken and war-torn countries who are looking for safety and or better opportunities, which would, in essence, be those everyday people uh, that you were referring to? Um, Daniel, you, you, you made this point about um, bringing in top-tier people. Um, let, let's, let's be real honest about this situation, though. We are, we are excluding people that we feel visually aren't comfortable. We aren't comfortable with. When you talk about European immigrants coming into this country, we don't see the rush to stop them. We don't see the rush to halt their visas. We don't see the question of uh, 
uh, are, do, do they have anchor babies coming into our country? Because they do. They do the same things that these Hispanics do from, uh, from Mexico and from uh, other Latin America co American countries, but they aren't given the same vitriolic response as the European immigrants are given. When you, talk about, might... when you talk about visas, you're talking about a matter of, of months for, sometimes for some of these European immigrants versus a matter of decades uh, for some of these Hispanic uh, individuals. And you can't tell me, it, it, when you juxtapose yourself with the conservative party and, and say that, hey, uh, th we deal with, we are more liberal on social issues, this is one of those social issues that I think that you can't, you can't argue and say that you are for uh, a more liberal point of view for, for social interest when you espouse this, this particular type of, of condoning of uh, children not being given uh, a legal right to counsel. Uh, when you espouse uh, separation of children from their parents in these particular, uh, uh, for, for lack of a better term, concentration camps. When you espouse the belief that uh, immigrants, by virtue of where they came from, are less than the others who come from more countries that look like the majority of Americans. Okay, um, well, I think that... Uh, that may have been less true at the time when Europeans were the predominant uh, immigrant class. Um, I think there was a lot of pushback uh, during that time, uh, especially against Irish communities in New York City. Um, you know, but yeah, uh, I think that, you know, I mean, and to be fair, like, I didn't say uh, I condone that I talked about the, the competing, well, you, you the know competing ways that it could be seen as libertarian. Okay. And so, um, yeah, uh, I... I don't think that it's good to discriminate against people on the, the basis of their skin color. I don't think that um, that's uh, overtly been the case with any of the recent immigration laws. You, um, you said it hasn't been the case with any of the, of the I mean, you talk Muslim countries sure. and, and, and Latin American countries. Yeah. That, that, is the, that is the primary basis A, for 8% of the, all the Muslim population lived in those countries. Right. So that 92% wasn't. And a lot of these countries, you know, we talk about how uh, the Libertarian Party says that they need to uh, remove people who are violent, you know, who commit uh, violent crimes, you know, then they could get deported. And I think everyone would want to be able to screen for violent uh, people coming into the country. Well, I'm glad you said so that. So in lots of these the... countries that are war-torn, it's hard to check records and verify people. I'm glad you said that because the countries that, that are part of that Muslim ban are not the countries that have been that have been shown to to bring in the terrorists uh, into into this country or who have tried to push terrorism into this country. Are you alluding to Saudi Arabia, perchance? I'm alluding to. <laughs> I'm alluding to. There's, 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 huh? Say it. Say it. He's going to do it to you. No, he's talking about Saudi Arabia. No, I'm talking about. I'm talking about the multiple countries. That are, that are part of that. Well, no, it's also convenient that Saudi, we've been a so-called ally of the Saudis for many years, and that I'm sure has to do with their vast amounts of oil that are underneath their sands. But they're conveniently left off something like this, yet uh, I've, several of the 9-11 terrorists were linked to, to Saudi money and Saudi uh, families. And I think I, that's a gross misrepresentation of what the United States should be doing at this point. We shouldn't be allying ourselves with someone who is, is known to support uh, terroristic causes. It, uh, unfortunately, um, uh, U.S. administrations, including uh, Barack Obama and, and the other 
um, <clears throat> Democratic or Republican uh, administration has been a uh, dedicated member to the Saudi families. So, so you, you, you guys asked us a question uh, before we got here, and it said, what does it really mean to be pro-life? And you included that with the immigration issue. I wanted, I wanted to, to, to put that together and talk about the question of the, the, quote, the anchor baby and the, the DACA recipient. Are those the type of, of, of people that deserve to be in America free of the, the rigmarole of the immigration process as it pertains to others that come in? I don't really care, honestly, who ends up here, just as long as you, can, you, you contribute to society. If you're going to sit on your couch all day and collect a paycheck from the government without doing anything productive, I don't think you should be here. But if you're, you know, gonna, if you're gonna slip across the border illegally, and you're gonna go work the job that no other American wants to do, then hats off to you, because obviously it's not gonna get done unless someone with that kind of work ethic is gonna do it, and they deserve to stay here. Daniel, I see your, I see your jaw twitching on that. Do you agree or disagree? Agre well, I mean, oh, could you repeat the? I said, question? do you agree or disagree with what he just said? <laughs> not that question, but listen, let me well, have, let, 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 let him answer real quick. I don't think he understands the question. No, I don't understand oh, so the question. That's what I was trying to do. Go ahead. So let me let me help you out, man. So the audience that we have now, I don't think they really appreciate the nuance and the difference between conservatism and or, well, the republicanism versus libertarianism. So I think our host here is kind of falling victim to that as well. He's trying to bait you with these questions, right? Hoping that you're going to say something characteristically Republican, but yet you say things that kind of throw him off a little bit. I think one of the problems is with, uh, you know, this bipartisan system we have is that we only know Republicans and Democrats. And then when you have someone like Libertarian who espouses those views, they kind of just get lumped in with the Republicans. I think it would be of a great, good service if you guys kind of delineate yeah, okay, what cool. makes you guys so different from run-of-the-mill Republicans. So a chart that's often used is a, a diamond chart, and it's you have uh, the liberals on the left, conservatives <coughs> on the right, authoritarians on top, libertarians at bottom. And to me, that chart makes a lot of sense. Because you talk about socially liberal, fiscally conservative, it sounds like they're uh, taken from each party and kind of molding something together. But the, the philosophy is very consistent, and that's what initially drew me to libertarianism. I was drawn to the moral argument and the consistency of it. I saw with so many uh, debates of Republican versus Democrat, it just seemed like they were arguing from opinion or to like a matter of degree on a bunch of issues. And I thought that uh, libertarianism with the non-aggression principle and the idea that you maximize freedom on every front and always look to problems that we face uh, for uh, searching for the solution that maximizes freedom for individuals. I thought that, that was a really refreshing thing and it seemed consistent and I thought the non-aggression principle, non principle is basically the golden rule and I think that's a good uh, way to live your life and that's what drew me to it and I don't see that type of uh, consistency or that type of something where you immediately know how you should feel about a certain issue that you find with libertarianism. So um, the president has a new um, Supreme Court nominee uh, that's getting ready to go through the process. Uh, Brett Kavanaugh. He is, for all intents and purposes, a staunch Republican. Um, pretty much all of his leanings have been very Republican, uh, and not just Republican, but conservative uh, in his Republican nature. 
you have Justice Ginsburg, um, who's probably, what is she, 90? 85. 85, I mean, she, but she looks 93. Um, <laughs> I would get <kill> older. <laughs> but, you know, so she, she's, she's, she's knocking on heaven's door eventually. Um, there, some can make the argument that not only will he have this particular nomination coming up, but he might have another one before his presidency is, uh, is done. With the way the Supreme Court is now shaping up to be more and more conservative, almost to the point of ultra-conservative, do you see that as a hindrance to the progress of, of this nation? Well, here's another divergence uh, from conservatives and libertarianism. Um, I, I tend to side with liberal justices when it comes to uh, Fourth Amendment issues, and I think that um, uh, the, the new Supreme Court nominee is you know, not good on those issues at all. Um, I think that that is a dangerous uh, direction that we could be headed towards as far as um, you know, diminishing more uh, Fourth Amendment pr protections. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, you can get, uh, conservatives who go both ways on the issue, but he seems to be more of a, um, tough on crime, uh, type of guy. And that, that's one thing, you know, I really disagree with when it comes to conservatives. And, and one of the issues that might be coming up, and, and Charles, you can speak on this too, is this question of, because we just had this, uh, this cake issue, I forget the name of the case, I'm sure Rod Masterpiece Cake Shop, where they, they didn't go into the issue of the business's right to discriminate mm -hmm. on the purpose, on the grounds of um, uh, a sexual, uh, I, I can comment, I can matter of sex. Real quick, for our audience members who aren't lawyers or legal students, the Fourth Amendment is? Okay, so Fourth Amendment is the, the, the right against illegal search and seizure. Okay, so he's saying that he, he espouses the belief that uh, no one should be illegally searched and seized. And we should be extrapolating uh, the rights of privacy as well. Yeah. It's the, the right to criminal privacy. Yeah, yeah. So going back to, to the question, um, do you, so, so certain issues like we're talking about the, these, uh, the gay rights, uh, because we just had the Oberfell case which allowed uh, um, uh, gay marriage to, to come into fruition. Do you see that you, you say on one instance, you, you were clear to say Fourth Amendment issues. Mm -hmm. But there are a number of issues that also go with um, discriminatory progress, like the gay rights issue. Do you see that coming into danger with this new conservatism that's coming onto the Supreme Court? I, I'd like to comment specifically on Masterpiece Cake Shop. Um, there was a big uh, nuance when that case first came down that it was a 7 2 vote, but it was a narrow holding. So in, in the law, we have. Uh, broad or narrow holdings. Now, the holding itself is the actual law that stands after the case goes, after the case is decided by the justices. It has no bearing on the actual vote between all of the justices. So you could have, you know, a unanimous 9-0 case, but it's also a, a, a narrow decision. So the issue that was at play with Masterpiece Cake Shop was whether or not the Colorado Civil Rights Commission abused their discretion in the administrative process in regard to the procedural aspects of um, litigating the case within the state of Colorado. So honestly, I think the court purposely evaded the question because they really, maybe they don't understand or maybe they don't know what the answer is supposed to be yet. Because the more and more I thought about this, you're either going to say that these businesses have a right to discriminate if, if you want to come totally on the free speech issues, and then you're going to have 
you know, the, the, the Trump supporting business just turning away all Democrats. You know, the, the Democrat business turning away all Trump supporters. If you're wearing a MAGA hat, you can't even come in. You know, that's one issue. But then you're good, and then if they ruled the other way, you would have the issue of, well, you know, this Masterpiece Cake Shop said you, you have to make this cake, 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 cake. But what do you think, I mean, at, at the crux of the issue is eventually it's going to come back up again, probably within the next year or two, the question of the ability for a business to discriminate on the grounds of sexual orientation. I mean, that, that to me, when you talk about, as a libertarian, when you talk about eliminating uh, the government function in the personal lives of people, uh, and, and you make the nuance, the libertarians make the nuance of as long as it doesn't hurt somebody. Is this one of those issues where it hurts somebody? I, I don't think this is an issue where it does actually hurt anyone because the fact of the matter is this isn't an issue of public accommodation. We're talking about a bakery. We're not talking about actual provisions which you require. We're not talking about the bakery. We're talking about the ability for a company to discriminate on the grounds of sexual orientation. I think ultimately, uh, principally speaking, the market shall decide who lives and who dies. And I agree with that. So if, if they choose to, to turn away a, a gay couple for a gay wedding, other people can take notice and refuse to take their business to that establishment. Doesn't that just promulgate the resurgence of blacks only, whites only? No. No, no. it doesn't. Why? Why, why, why doesn't it? Because we, we have, we have, so one thing about exclusion is if you're not able to provide, you're not able to provision that certain thing that you're being deprived of from this other institution, then you can have an argument for exclusion. But when you have your own, you have alternatives that you can patron, then that's not the same argument. When we, did, when we didn't have schools we can go to as an alternative, then, you know, I would have, a, it would be a separate argument if they were excluding us from those schools or those other institutions. Or if a bakery wasn't allowing me to buy a cake because I was gay, I can go down the street and go to another bakery that has a, that can sell a cake. Those people still have their First Amendment right as well, which also includes religious liberties as well. I don't think that, I think it's a slippery slope when you start to impose upon people who they should be marrying in their churches. Or, I, I don't agree with it from a fundamental, uh, from a fundamental stance. I, I, I wouldn't discriminate against someone based on their sexual orientation. But, so, so what if... So what if I'm, so what if I'm a gay man who lives in a shop with only one cake company? That's a terrible. Like, I mean, I mean I, not, no, I'm saying like, I'm saying like to area? say to say that the market to say that the market will decide is is a little elitist when you think about where we're from versus the entire country. Mm -hmm. There's some places that the market cannot determine what's going to happen because there's not enough market share to do that. You might be you might be a gay person in a place where being gay is you know truly like frowned upon by everybody in the town. So then then what do you have? You have no protections, right? You just have to you just have to eat it. You have to take it and try to figure out how you can well, get out of that town. I'm, I'm saying but what do you what do you say uh, if everything around me is against me for the color of my skin or my sexual orientation, then it's up to me to to rally up enough support to put them out of business or I just have to get the hell out. Like that's Listen, that's this not is, this, you're, you're this is one of the problems that I, I run into with us as a form of protest, right? We also are, are running to the government or to for them to pass some law to protect us legislatively, you know, why don't we mobilize our economic forces to you know, to bring to bear the consequences on that particular business or industry that is discriminating against well, us. I don't I don't want, I don't want a government to force me to patron someone who doesn't want to serve me.
But if I'm one man yeah, well, and I need that service and there is nobody else you're around, you're changing the hypothesis. That's, no, that's a broad hypothetical. No, it's not, it's not because you, you, you specified market, market share and market value and saying that if there's a market for it, you can go to this shop instead of this I shop. I also say if that's the case, then there's an argument. That's what I said. I shouldn't have to go. I shouldn't have to There are universal issues, and this is one of those issues where you can't. It's not universal. I shouldn't have to margin on No, it's not universal. I said. I specifically said, looking at Damon, that if this is if this is an institution of higher learning where they exclude me from it, but I have an alternative, then that's a separate oh, issue from where I have no alternative. Not just, not just that. Not this just is that. not a case of somebody you who get, doesn't have an alternative to go no, elsewhere. No, it's not, it's not about alternatives. It's about telling me that I have to go gather up enough support to either put somebody out of business or make them do the right thing or treat me like I'm a damn human being. Why would you want to support that, that business? I'm not saying I want to support it. <laughs> what I'm saying is if I choose to go into any place, I should at least be treated as a goddamn human. The like, law should, you the, can't just kick, you, you, you can't deny just, you I, certain. I agree. Hold on, hold on, Rob, because you're, essentially what it sounds like you're saying is that um, in, in this urban area, you've got plenty of places to go to, and if it happens that you're in a rural area, then let's switch about it. Let's, let's, let's switch I'm it up. I'm arguing hypotheticals, not specificity, you but you're trying to, make, you you're trying to drive have, me to a specific situation you where you're going to make a strong argument. You can't have specificity when you're talking about the law, which is a universal. That's BS. Ahead, so, I, you know, the, the one problem to think about um, is, you know, if you say that you uh, deserve something when you come into a store, that you should get something when you should come into a store, you know, be treated a certain way, that, that, that's saying that, you know, you have a higher claim to what the person is selling than they have. And that's a problem. If you have goods and services that you are willing to, uh, you know, sell to people or perform to people, and someone can, through the force of law, force you to do that when you don't want to, it's the government saying that that person has a higher claim to your good or services than you do, even though it's yours until you sell it. You said it so delicately that it almost got past me as something sweet. Now, I, I think that <laughs> when, you, when you talk about superiority in, in, in purchasing power, this is not an issue of, of, of purchasing power because no. what, what, what the, the problem with your statement, from my point of view, is that you're talking about a commodity from a business who has been given the right to perform business for its citizens, not for a specific type of citizen. Given you the right, what do you mean given be, the right? Because meaning that when you applied for that, that small business application or whatever you did to, to, to have your business come to fruition, the law has already said, hey, you're, you are providing a business to the citizens of this country. So when because you say it's so that, regulated. Well, well, that's what you have right if now. If I so have a bushel of apples and uh, I refuse to sell them to you and you get, the, you get a law passed and it forces me to do it, those are, those are my apples. And so... It'd be saying the law would be that you have a higher claim to my apples than I do, even though they're my apples and I haven't given them to it's you. It's not a higher claim; you have an equal claim to the apples. It's a okay. between, but why do you have an equal claim to someone that something that someone mm -hmm. has? Why do you have an equal claim to well, something? Because why do you have an equal claim to their capital? Because this is a capitalist country in which we espouse the, the private property. Well, no, this is a capitalist country where we espouse the belief of equality. You can't have equality and say, you know what, we're going to pick and choose when to be Who's equal. Who's going to be equal to? You sit, in, you sit in a room full of people that for a very long time had people tell us, no, you can't shop here. You can't sit here. You can't eat here. And it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter if you're a doctor, if you're a lawyer, if you're the best of the best. You're a nigger, and you don't get to sit here. And that is not something that should be right in this country where we're supposed to be free, we're supposed to be founded on all these principles, but I have to step away because you have a better, you have a, a higher right to what you're selling. No, 
there's there's there is a fine line between you know doing business with someone who is coming to you um, in a manner that is acceptable and respectable just to do business with you and you saying no nah, well, I, I don't want well, do business you, with you because you are this you have to see, see though that the, 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 a lot of those laws it wasn't business owners weren't allowed to decide. Uh, who they could refuse or not to. Sure, it was, they could. It was mandated it was Jim by Crow. Man yeah, point, Jim Crow laws, right? Right. He's correct. Jim Crow said you can sit here. Jim Crow said that. Now, now, businesses probably yeah. supported it. Business probably yeah, were all supported it. I'm, I'm not. I'm not arguing against that. But what he's saying is technically correct. That was a legal aspect. And so, when the law is subjugating you, you fight the law. But when the economy point, is subjugating you, come on, man. So you're trying to tell me I'm not, I'm saying that I all of the white business saying. owners during Jim Crow was like, we'd love to serve no, no, y'all, but prior to Jim Crow <laughs> laws, businesses had a right to discriminate and say, you are not allowed to be here Absolutely. because you look like X, Y, and Z. Once we, once it didn't change until we had the right to be equal as citizens. Then all of a sudden, businesses were told, "Hey, what you were doing before these people weren't citizens was okay. Now that they are citizens, it's no longer okay to discriminate against them." It was okay for them to have a superior right to choose who who could buy and sell. But then all of a sudden, when the government said, "No, what you're doing is wrong because it doesn't play with this equality issue that we have," all of a sudden it's oh, it's government overreach. All of a sudden it's oh, they're they're in my business too much. I don't see how it's good for you when it benefits you, but it's not good for you when it right. when it actually includes everybody right. oh, else. Oh, just go start your own business. That's that's all you. That's all you need. Go start your own business. Let me ask another question a different way, right? So, do you believe that a that the First Amendment gives a person the right to express their religion the way they see fit. Do you, do you believe that, yes or no? Yes. Okay, so do you think that a clergyman should be forced to marry a gay couple even though he disagrees with that fundamentally per his religion? Do I believe that a clergyman should be forced to marry somebody even though it does not... Comport with his religion, religious beliefs. Or even most religious doctrine. Because I'm, I'm trying to give a parallel to the churches. Baker situation. It's not a parallel. It's a near parallel. Just humor me then. Answer the question. But it's not a parallel. Humor me then. Answer the question as I stated it. Because you don't walk into a church and ask somebody for a service that you're paying. Sure you do. It's not a business. You've been married before, right? Yeah. You had to ask someone to govern your wedding, right? Yeah. I didn't pay them. Listen, that's, 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 that's you know how many point. ministers listen, are paid to do weddings? That's, that's, exactly. So listen, listen to my point, Chuck. Forget that. Answer my that. question. Do you think a, a, a clergyman who has a belief that states that he is against, he is morally opposed to gay marriage, he should be compelled by the government to marry those two people? The difference is the separation. I'm, I'm trying to. Yeah, I, Calm down, black man. The answer is there's a separation of church and state. In the in the premise of corporations and businesses having to having to 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 uh, go along with the edicts of equality as it pertains to all citizens, that is separate than a church being able to to comport what it deals in in its religious uh, beliefs and views. So on one side, you have patrons, as he talked about, giving commercial money for this, the trade and selling of goods versus a religious, religious separation problem. that so says you are allowed to wrong. do yeah, whatever that's religion you have. That it's not irrelevant. The, the separation of church and state has nothing, nothing to, to do, do with, with that. discrimination <laughs> of based on religious doctrine. You that's should know better, lawyer. First Amendment. That's, it, it's, the, the right for a, a religious doctrine to discriminate is based purely on First Amendment, owing nothing to its separation from, from, from church and state. Those doctrines are completely different, different and separate. I agree with Watt in that his analogy is parallel. 
I agree that, and you didn't answer the question. I still agree with that. Also. I, I just said I, I do think that there is a difference. I, I said why I think there's a difference because so in one instance we're talking about religion versus commercial commodities. The question is, do you think he should be forced to do it or not? And I, the answer is no because they deal with different types of issues. But, one is a commercial so, commodity. One is religion. So, if, so if the you, answer is no. So if you are then relying upon your religion as justification for something that's antithetical to your religion, then. With Rod, you should be able to No, because they are so inexplicably intertwined that when you put yourself as a religious uh, base into commercial, uh, these are not, this isn't a church you're going to to buy and sell cupcakes or whatever you're buying, you're getting. This is a business. That this is, no, this that, is. That's a terrible. It's retort. not. You just don't that's like the no, answer. That's just, on a, from the facts. Yeah. Just because you don't like it doesn't mean it's wrong. You know how many people have been right, but they were told they were wrong because they didn't like it. You know what? Man. Segregation should have been right. Listen, but, this is why libertarianism on, in theory you know, basically solves this problem. Government should be out of the business of legislating morality and legality and all this other stuff. All I mean, that like, does is lead to anarchy. Religious and stuff like that. All that does is lead to anarchy. should be out of the business of marriage and all that other stuff anyway. I don't think that the problem is with libertarianism, there's uh, there's always been an implicit acknowledgement that the government always has to exist. It's a necessary evil. Um, I just started reading a book about the Constitutional Convention. The likes of George Washington and George Mason and James Madison all said that the Articles of Confederation were an utter and complete failure at the time of our founding. In 1787, there was this idea that we kind of needed a strong central government to acknowledge that certain things should be done at a more central level, but also certain things need to be deferred to the states. So it, libertarianism is far different from anarchy. I, I think a more uh, I, accurate word might be minarchy. Uh, well, to an extent, the is the start of There's the so many different ways, you know, classically liberal. There's so many things that can be considered. <laughs> I, I personally like classically libertarian liberal. umbrella. I mean, like from a, a purely, you know, from purely like a theoretical standpoint, you know, voluntarism. That's you know, like a, a philosophy that it would be great, but is really hard to implement in practice. And like minarchy seems to be like the way that you put these ideas into practice. So I think that. Um, you know, libertarianism is great in the sense, you know, even if people don't uh, think that it can work in, in every case or in every sector, um, having the idea or remembering that, uh, you know, it, that it's important not to aggress against people and that to remember these, like, moral rules that underlie the libertarianism, it will steer people in the right direction. They'll be conscientious. They'll think of others, you know, and think of how the ramifications of certain policies and how they affect others. And I think that, you know, everyone can benefit by, you know, becoming well-versed in libertarianism and so, being exposed to it. I, real quick, because I'm not well-versed on libertarianism. I don't know a lot about it as much as you guys do, but I've been living in this country a long time. And all I know is when you walk into a business, you don't have to look like, like me but you should respect me enough to do business because I've been living in this country long enough to know if you didn't have the government or somebody there saying do business with these people and treat them with a modicum of respect, a lot of people in this country will get their heads rolled over. So, so, you know, um, the president recently um, said something to the effect of let's take a look at this affirmative action issue. You got UT premier school, you know, in Texas, that uh, University of Texas, that has had the white enrollment go down as a, as a result of affirmative action. There are other schools that said, hey, 
Uh, diversity is not necessarily helping our bottom line. Um, when you talk about businesses and, and the role of government and people being able to choose what they wanted to do uh, as, as individual participants, as American citizens, does this not directly affect affirmative action and the benefits that affirmative action affords minorities? Let's not all speak at once, fellas. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Do, totally do no, Trump's no, 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 comments affect affirmative action? No, no, no. Affirm so affirmative action, because you, you talk about individuals being able to, to, to do what they want to do as, as a libertarian, you know, small government, uh, let, let people do what they, they want to do. Does affirmative action, um, how does affirmative action play its role in libertarianism? Well, I mean, libertarians value meritocracies. So... Ooh. Go, go ahead. No, no. Well, let, me, let, me, let me lean back on this one. If you believe in the primacy of the individual, then you think that, you know, it's up to the individual to, you know, uh, I guess prove themselves and get along. I, I guess, uh, you know, to if everything is voluntary, you know, and you can't aggress against people, you have to get along with people or, you know, uh, make yourself... Uh, desirable to them in order to get uh, opportunities. And so, so you use some trigger words, desirous, um, merit, um, <laughs> white, almost. that's what I heard as, as the sub-context sub of that. But, you know, and, and to be fair to you, before I go in, Dana. So the, the entire problem with meritocracy is that it, it's the belief that you start off equal, that you start off on the same level and can compete with the same way as everybody else, like, every, like everything. Communism, capitalism, libertarianism, on paper it all sounds great, but in reality it does not. You can't say people who start off at a disadvantage, hey, just do your best and compete with me at my advantage, and then uh, we'll see who wins at the very end. That's where it all falls apart. You can't be five steps ahead of me and then look back while you're ahead of me saying, why don't you catch up? I mean, it's just not where it's at. Um, I can understand... I understand the philosophy behind uh, meritocracy, and I understand the philosophy behind everybody work hard and you get what you put into it. I get that philosophy, but it just doesn't pan the same when my when I have to work twice as hard and you have to work half as much, and we're at the same level. Yeah. And so that's why I think of meritocracy. If, uh, if meritocracy falls apart, well, even on equal footing, forget forget about those that have that head start, right? To, because that's clear. We all know about that. We all know there's some people who have. A privilege of having a head start, but even in a world where two people have the exact same qualifications, we've seen that there's a propensity from institutions from the NFL, Colin Kaepernick doesn't have a job, that's supposed to be a meritocracy, from mm -hmm. universities, mm -hmm. from hiring by resumes based with applicants with the same uh, with the same qualifications but a different name, one that sounded ethnic and one that did not, right? All of those things are supposed to be meritocracies, let the best man, best woman get the job, but still the institutions have this thing going on where, where all those people don't get a fair shake. If there's not something in place, um, you know, even in, the ter even in terms of university, I, I would say, okay, if you strip away names, if you strip away uh, high schools, if you strip away a lot of that stuff, there will probably be a difference in what you see the admissions process being from some of these legacy or higher income kids right. than there are from people you know, from low areas, because that has always been the case. And I, and I think, Daniel, when you, when, you, when you bring merit into the argument, you first have to be brought to the table for your merit to even be determined. 
And that's the, pro the problem with not including affirmative action in, in, in having the government stay out of the business is that people aren't even afforded the opportunity to show just how good or, conversely, how bad they are in that particular uh, uh, interest. You talk about the ability for, for minority Americans to go to universities. Others will say, well, hey, they are taking away good spots for people like me simply because they're black or simply because they're Hispanic. Not understanding that, no, what we're actually doing is giving these people the same platform that you have because, but for affirmative action, they wouldn't even be mentioned in consideration. Well, and I think where, is, where, where your point I, I do agree with is once the opportunity is given, that's where meritocracy takes place, right? When you get into After the fact. Yeah, when you get into but affirmative action is pre-merit. Right, if you can't hack it, you're out. Absolutely. If you get into a place, if you get into a job, if you're given the opportunity, and we've seen when given the opportunities, people rise or fall based on their own merit. So I think that's exactly where it should be. But the, the, the step before that of getting the opportunity, there still needs to be some tweaking done there. Kind of like what Crystal Washington says, meritocracy ignores unconscious bias. And I, and I think she's spot on with that. You know, you, you've got to get there first before you can even talk about the merit of something. Go real quick, Rob, because we're gonna switch off to the next. Okay, session. so but you know we just flat out like usually vilify any any talk you know trying to uh, talk about disposing with affirmative action, but as the the article we we read before we came in about UT and the case that's probably about to come up to, to the Supreme Court soon, like they've shown that there's been more diversification in Texas with the seven percent the top seven percent uh, admission automatic admission to public schools than with the affirmative action alone. So there are some elements of meritocracy that would work to further diversify. Yeah. So uh, it's, it's not affirmative action is not the only answer. No, 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 I don't think anybody no, no saying that. No, no, no. But I think I think we have to we have to be cognizant of the, those facts and say let's make sure that opportunities are given and figure out a way to do it. It doesn't have to be affirmative action. Yeah. It can be like I said, if you strip if you took an application and stripped everything from it except for the merit and then said okay, figure out who's going to be in. Maybe that's the way to do it, but there's there's plenty of ways, but it has to be opportunity needs to be given across the board for people to try. We're in agreement. So, so fellas, Daniel, Kyle, yeah, um, we we're, we've come to the point where um, we're going to talk about black versus white <laughs> <laughs> uh, crime, crime in America, the white tears of nine one one calls. Um, Let's start off with, with, with those, those salty tears. Um, we have had a string of publicized 911 phone calls that have been made against uh, people of color for everyday life happenings. They're barbecuing. They're swimming in pools. They're opening their businesses. They're going into their homes. They're walking and they're breathing. Do you find that there is merit to making phone calls like this? And I, I, actually, let me scratch that. What do you feel is wrong with that scenario, if anything? Well, I mean, libertarians don't think the government should be the answer to every problem, so why would you call the government every time? <laughs> I like it. I like it. Okay. Okay. So you have so, so that brings up an actually really good point because they just had 
a um, a guy who was shot, a black man who was shot because he came outside. His um, his his wife was arguing with a white guy. This is down in Florida. Uh, wife was arguing with a white guy over a handicap spot. Apparently, the handicap it was it was kind of vague as to if this was a handicap spot or not. Black guy walks outside, sees this guy yelling at his wife face to face. He shoves the guy to the ground. The video shows him backing away from the man. Man pulls out his gun, shoots him in the chest, and the guy dies. More information comes up that this particular uh, gentleman who did the, who was the aggressor in terms of shooting, uh, has had several run-ins with people at that store over handicap issues, almost as if he was goading somebody into a, com uh, a, a conflict. That was him taking action into his own hands. Um, you also have another guy in another store who was seen uh, purportedly, or who's seen uh, choking a, a purported uh, shoplifter. And that guy eventually is able to, to get away. Do you not find with this whole not government interaction that you, also, you almost increase the dangers and empower and embolden certain people that shouldn't be empowered and emboldened? I, I don't think there's a, a people are more empowered or emboldened because there's a fundamental idea uh, that goes to common law in, in torts that you're supposed to use equal force to equal force. And if you, if you reasonably believe that your life is in danger, that's when you can use deadly force. Under no circumstances in civil law enforcement, and that includes when, you, when you're by yourself and you feel like you're being aggressed. Under no circumstances, unless you reasonably believe that your life is in danger, then you should be able to use deadly force. In these certain instances, if you're shoplifting and someone gets choked to death as a result of that, or is severely injured as a result of that that interaction, either by a, a, a civil a citizen or by a police officer. Under no circumstances is, is that acceptable. Uh, for the instance of the handicap spot, that's that's like, you know, judge, jury, and executioner all in one. And under no circumstances should you kill you should suit someone who's a, um, you know, basically an, an execution type. You know, scenario. And Daniel, maybe you can maybe you can answer this question. Don't you think that um, there is a big difference between a law as written and the application of said Absolutely. law? When you talk about the Florida stand your ground issue, written on paper. Absolutely. Everybody should, should be able to defend themselves with the necessary force to stop whatever said threat is. However, the problem comes in with the application of what we consider to be discretionary use of force. And everybody is not created equal when we turn to that application process. Because you've got another woman, a black woman, who, who shot a guy, or who didn't even actually shoot the guy. She shot into the air and was given uh, 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 time for that when she said, hey, I was threatened, I felt threatened, all I did was shoot in the air, I didn't even shoot the guy. On one hand, you've got the Zimmermans, and I don't know this guy's name of the world, that say, ah, you know, hey, I was standing my ground, I felt, I, felt, uh, I felt threatened. And on the other side, you know what, we'll, we'll go ahead and we understand your plight, uh, you're, you're safe. And on the other hand, you've got other people that don't get the same privileges in the application of that law. I think ultimately you're dealing with a lot of different jurisdictions who have a lot of different statutes and you have a lot of different juries. That's a question of fact. And in, in the law we have, we have juries to decide whether or not something is, is a, a question or whether or not they used a reasonable force. Ultimately you will get your day in court and ultimately not every jury is the same and what, you know, what is that reasonable person? We, we, we have yet to find that so-called reasonable person in the law.
So, I mean, juries can sometimes be a crapshoot, but ultimately I think that's the, the best course of action that we have. And ultimately that's, it's, there's so many different aspects to that, whether it's, it's you know, the, the type of statute that's being uh, promulgated and prosecuted in court, or it's the type of the, the, the um, discretion and the makeup of the jury. There's so many different nuances in this, but I, I, I can't fully ex explain that. It really is yeah. nuanced. Yeah. I mean, it, it's hard to say that, you know, if, if you have a variant enforcement, um, it's hard to say that the law itself is the problem, you know, because any law can be enforced variably. And uh, I think that, you know, uh, laws that allow you to defend yourselves are, are good. You know, it's like being able to use recipro reciprocal force to counter a threat is good for everybody. You know, it's just, it makes you a strong, um, like, individual. Um, you know, and when it is, uh, you know, I think that the, the case you're talking about, I saw the video and there's, you know, really it's, it's an easy argument to make that, you know, he didn't reasonably fear that his life was in danger because there was a pause and he did back up. And I think that that's, you know, I hope that they review that and decide to put it before a jury because it sounds like, you know, uh, if there's any doubt, you know, you have to leave that to the to the jury to decide um, whether it was a reasonable fear or not. <laughs> Damon, what do you have to say on that? Well, I was going to say uh, that to me is an issue of a vote. Uh, the the DA in that county jurisdiction, parish, wherever it is, should have brought that to a, their form of a grand jury that we have in Texas, or just should arrest it, investigate it. Should have done more. Uh, that's why you have to vote. I mean, you got to vote for people that are going to enforce the laws and enforce them fairly uh, and enforce them with common sense across the board. And to have a situation from what we saw off the video where this clearly wasn't staying on the ground, um, it didn't appear from what I saw that the, the, the guy on the ground was in any way threatening. Like, he just he's on the ground. And I don't know how threatening you can be without having a weapon in front of me to me. Um, but that that particular prosecutor, the head DA in that county, should have should have done more than say we're not going to prosecute because it looks like stand your ground. That's an issue that should have been brought brought before the the, the people. So the people need to vote and vote this person out. So is that is that your answer? Because Kevin Plowden says all juries are different and ju different jurisdictions have different statutes. But we always seem to come out on the losing end, no matter the jury or jurisdiction. That's a problem that needs to be addressed. So unequivocally, is the answer then simply vote? There's no unequivocal, but. We, you have a nuanced problem. It's a multifaceted solution. The first one is vote. You have to put people in office that will respect all people and not just uh, their particular constituent and not just those who don't look like you. So you need to have people in power who, who will enforce the law. You have to, the first thing is vote. You have to vote. All right, you can't complain of a governmental agency that requires a vote for not being responsive to your community if your community isn't out there politicking and voting. And even if you lose, even if you vote for the other person, <clears throat> if enough people come out and vote against me, that will let me know I'm not as strong as I think I am. So I have to at least in some way candor or pander to this this particular base. You have to vote. So that's that that is I'm advocating that one solution. I can't give all of them, but for sure that one. To to Kyle's point also is super nuanced, but uh, not just voting, but once once somebody is in office, I think the creation of the laws themselves are influenced by outside public interests who gave the most money. Uh, maybe it's the NRA looking at certain laws about whether or not standing your ground is legal. So I think whether a law is written to really be for the good of the people of that jurisdiction is one thing. Then you look at the application of those laws and justice clearly um, is not equal in this country based on your laws also. I mean, 
you know, it's just, there's so many different areas. Because I think even down, I think even if you take a step back from voting and look at the laws themselves that they're created, there's a bunch of things on the books that you would probably say, how in the hell did that get there? But it's because somebody wanted it there to serve their particular their particular set of interests. I think, the, you know, the whole DA coming out and saying, oh, this is staying your ground, we're not going to prosecute them. I think that's a gross misrepresentation of how the justice system should work. They should have been, like, done their own research and been like, bring it to a grand jury. Let the, the finders of fact decide if there's probable cause to bring charges in right. this case. I, I firmly believe that our legal system can, in fact, do that, and it does it fairly well. Now, granted, there are always nuances and exceptions to that. However, to go out in public and at the initial stage of, you know, something like this happening is, I, I think, unethical and disingenuous to being a public servant. Well, to, to not to play, to, to bring something to your attention, I think the juror's argument you made is uh, almost similar to the, uh, the buyer's argument in capitalism. And so if, if cases are brought to juries and juries hold one way, that's, that's not correct. It's almost the same thing as saying, well, the market spoke, and so the market is saying that it should be this way. I think we need, I don't want to rely solely on juries because they don't always, I mean, they don't always get it right. So th there should be more to it than just that. I mean, you should get it to them, but there should be more to it than just that. So, Kyle, you guys wanted to talk about uh, crime in America and, and, and black people as it pertains to uh, <laughs> said crime. Um, what, what is it exactly that you wanted to discuss? I, I want to let you guys drive this particular part of the conversation because we're here uh, as an opening ear to oh, listen. Yeah. Oh, I mean, we were just talking before this, and, you know, we are thinking of, Maybe like you know crossover points where we would agree, and um, you know like that's why I started talking about the Fourth Amendment and um, other things like that. And uh, yeah, I mean, well, we could talk about that. Well, I which, guess. Which, <laughs> is there a question that you guys have on that? I mean, what what what's what particular point it, that you right, uh, that you had? I'll I'll put a premise out there. More of a question for the, the, the general audience here. No need to stutter. <laughs> hey man, speak freely, man. Yeah. Is do you believe that black people commit more crime? If you believe that, do you think that, or, or do you think people in general commit crime because they ha lack a family and support structure? Do you think that there's a fundamental problem with people who commit crime that have issues with support in their lives? I see where you're going with that one. So it's interesting that you asked that first question of, do you think black people commit more crimes? Um, when you look at the numbers, Black people actually don't commit more crimes than white people. Statistically speaking, even on the federal level, the FBI put out uh, the, their statistics on this, um, that it's almost double uh, what white pe black people, um, in terms of the amount of crimes that they commit, white people commit double, to triple that amount. Now, however, when you break down the actual st statistics of which particular crimes, admittedly, there are more black people in prison for murder yes. than there are white people. However, on every other, every other major violent crime uh, that's, that's statistically out there, white people double the amount of black people uh, that are out there. Robbery as well. Huh? I got the statistics up. Robbery I mean, and murder. Well, well, robbery. Well, okay, I apologize. Robbery and murder are, are where we, where black people are, are above. However, <laughs> however, when you talk about major crimes uh, in in total, white people by far are more likely to commit those crimes. And interestingly enough, in terms of rape, 
white people astoundingly. Well, y'all own rape. <laughs> Yo, white people own rape. Bro. Theft crimes and rape crimes are where white people shine, which is interesting because that is colonialism at its finest. Hey, man, listen. Oh, man. Let's be fair, though. Like, if you, if you adjusted the statistics for per capita, then, like, <laughs> some of these statistics aren't that cut and dry. You know, if you do it per the 12.5% of the population, the aggregate amount of crimes per that number versus how much white people commit versus their 40-something percent, that is a total different picture that you get from that. So I think the answer to your question is what crime are you talking about? If you're talking about murder, because that seems to be the most, you know, hot-button topic about, you know, when we talk about this issue, then, yes, it's incontrovertible. White, black people commit more crimes in that particular regard. But what, where are we going with this? Well, I think his, his, <laughs> your question was about why, the why of, the the, why the of why. it. It's, why do people resort to, to committing crimes? It, and this isn't even a, a race issue. No, no, was about to, I, that was literally yeah, coming out of my mouth. Before we jump into the why, I, I just want to go back to one thing about black people committing more crimes. I think black people are caught committing more crimes because they're more policed okay. than probably and, anybody and else. You're right, because country. that's the arrest rates. Yeah, for we're these, talking, because we're, we're not even talking about conviction rates either. Who gets policed more? Who gets stopped more? You know, you and I might have the same amount of time that we run red lights or have something in our car we shouldn't have, but I guarantee you I'm getting stopped more than you yeah, are on a per capita that, basis. So, let's, I mean, we can't go too much into the statistics of who gets caught and who doesn't well, get caught. what are caught. we supposed to use? I bet it's a bunch of damn unsolved murders out there. I know, but even statistically you have white people overrepresented in certain things, so if you want to use that argument. I, I get that, <laughs> but I'm just saying, don't. But let's not just say, based on statistics, black people do this. Because let's not talk about the drug yeah. issue and the, the rate at which black people are charged and convicted for drug usage exactly. versus the, the Caucasian. That goes to which drugs we tend to use and as far as the, the, the sentencing disparities well, as well. Use, not just not necessarily If you look at the policing. usage numbers, the usage numbers are totally different than the conviction numbers. Right. I agree with you, but what I'm saying, y'all are trying to oversimplify. Like, this is not that simple. It's like, I'm not. I'm just trying to make sure we don't, I mean, I'm just trying I to make sure we don't get into this. We're in agreement thing. fundamentally. Like, yeah. anecdotally, we know, like, I, I know we are targeted as right. far as and there's And there's but, a history about how crime, how, how criminality gets reported in this country and the narrative that's been created since Jim Crow, because if you looked at how white people described black people before slavery ended, there was no there was no talk about black people black men being aggressive or criminal or any of those things. Black people were jovial and they were nice and they were happy to be here. As soon as that free labor force ended, there was a there was we all know about the stories about people being sent to jail to continue that slavery after slavery. That's when all Americans began about talking about the aggressiveness of the black male and all of those things that have become what we know. Media used to call. I mean, when, when you talked about the you talk about the narrative. The media, when you talk about new, newspapers, used to have headlines: "Giant Negro Attacks." You know, they they would talk about us in in a way, in a shape and form that suggested that we were overly aggressive. That suggested that we were um, uncontrollable. And that narrative has continued. Just because black people are in prison doesn't mean that black people comprise the majority of prison systems. Yet and still, black people are still considered the ones who are the danger well, those, and dredge to society. Color, the, the last discussion that we had, those things color what a jury sees when they see a person. It colors what a cop sees Absolutely. when we wonder about why they're so quick to pull their guns. Those things still color. Those have been passed down. Those things color everybody's you know, mentality when they think about interacting with a certain people. There's a there's a thought process that comes with interacting with black, white, Hispanic, gay, straight, 
those are things that are handed down through through narratives that have been created. So, and, and just I, just as a pure anecdote, the narrative about the every every negative stereotype about a black person in America came from the birth of a nation. Not the Nat Turner movie that came out recently, but its first iteration yeah. was nineteen twenty one. Is like the first silent, uh, it, it silent films. Every every negative stereotype that black people face today was birthed in that one movie, and from that just spun forth everything. Uh, so, so, and I'll just bring that up because because the narrative of who we are. Can I be the Can I be the voice of dissent? Sure. Per, All right. Per you. Yo. So so I think we agree on the overarching point of. The, the how race fits into the criminal justice system. We all are in complete agreement. We are disproportionately targeted and uh, sentenced for these crimes, right? But let me ask you a separate question. Does the fact that men commit more crimes and are convicted for more crimes than women mean that the criminal justice system is sexist? Is that going to Crystal Washington's question of, um, I think she said, no, 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 why no, do no, men no. resort to committing more crimes than women? No, this is a separate question. To I'm, I'm, trying, I'm trying to bring up the question of, Yes. Is every difference is every yes. is, is every disparity yes. every distant difference in between the black yes. cultures and white cultures necessarily predicated on race? So I'll, no. I'll, I'll just part of that. There is a concept in Harris County that I, we that I've known. It's called uh, the female trial tax. All right. If you have a female client, you're probably going to fare better in criminal trials than a male client because people are just sympathetic to females. All right. They, we were just by by either by chivalry or toxic masculinity, or whatever else we'll talk about later in this show, <laughs> we, we, we cater to want to protect women and punish them. So you have to be an egregious female, or probably black, to get the ear of the criminal justice system. So you th so those numbers, once again, it's a narrative. Uh, if, 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 say, for instance, uh, me and my wife commit a crime, we go rob a bank, right? If, if she just says, just says, you know what, I was just there, I didn't do nothing, I was just there with Damien, he did it all, they will let her go. Conversely, if Brendan and I went and robbed the bank and he was like, you know, I was just there, I was just there, man, you know, no. Nah. He, he's taking a ride with me. You know, the same story, but because, you know, she's a woman and he's a man, it's different. So it's, it's to answer your question, it, it's hard to say that, that it's sexist or not because women get treated differently just because they're women. Let me ask you a question. Simply put, do you think that women commit more murders than men? They, they, kill oh, our, oh, oh. they kill our hearts, man. Oh, yeah. Like, that's what they, they you, I mean, come every on. Day, I, every I was, day I'm murdered I by a woman. I don't know the numbers. You don't need I'm, numbers. But I may, I may have that inherent bias off the top of my head. I would say no. But they, so why does that mean? Yes, because, they, because, because of women we kill. We do a lot of crazy shit for well, women. Men so are, men, I, I would, I would posit that men are more aggressive than women in terms of physical aggression just by, just, just, as a as a as a as a as a benchmark. So when you're talking about well, well but you're you're asking us the question of gender gender as it plays into criminality. So women no, women women are going to be the the prostitutes. They're going to be the the theft the, the the ones who commit the thefts. You know, by and large, they're not the ones that we see on a daily basis going to jail for for the the um, violent crimes. But that wasn't the substance of my question. The substance of my question was. To, for us to have a more robust discussion about does every difference between different cultures represent racism just because di there's difference? The fact that we are always pros we're prosecuted for certain crimes versus other people, does that always represent just the element of racism versus our penchant for a particular crime? I can, you can't, you, yes. you would be obtuse to say that something always does anything. No, so the answer right. is no, it doesn't yeah, always uh, attribute to that. But it's an obtuse statement to think that um, race does not play a pivotal role in how uh, minorities are, are 
tracked through the system itself. I already conceded that, so, but you seem, you seem reluctant to address some of the things that might be on us. I said no. Well, I, I just want to do one part. I don't want to jump off of Kyle's point because I think that's an interesting concept or topic about the why. Because I'd like to hear your thoughts and maybe if it, it comes from libertarianism, but that's, that's something that I, I'd like to This isn't even, we're getting into the personal antidotes here. Yeah. It's, you know, I'm very fortunate that I've had parents that aren't, aren't divorced. Uh, I've had been in a single income house. Are you bragging? No, no, no. <laughs> saying I'm fortunate. Yeah, uh, say. A, a, I've been single income household. Uh, my dad has had the same job for his entire career. He's been with the same company his entire career. And the more you hear about that, that's like un, unheard of today. And that probably played a role to my, uh, my control of my environment and my ability to focus on my careers and my pursuits and my ability to further skills, like go to law school. Because I have a support structure that allows me to lean on people when I have problems or if I need help to get myself to the next rung. Other people aren't necessarily in that same situation. And sometimes they're, you know, we have crimes of necessity. Sometimes you're going to steal some food because you're hungry or you're going to sleep somewhere. You're going to sleep in a, a, a church pew because you don't have anywhere to stay that night. And there are un unfortunate aspects of that that are, are part of life. But sometimes there's, there's also nuances to that. But sometimes those might be you know, because of personal choices, but they also might be because of their own, because of just circumstances that are totally out of their control. So a, a great, great point made by Crystal Washington who's watching live, adjusting for bias, crime is more a function of income than race. We both said that when you, yeah. well, I mean, that goes to your question of the, the why that you asked us when you first posited this, uh, this particular scenario. When you, when you speak of the African-American community and the reasons why they might be involved in the criminal justice system, um, it's one, you have to say it's multifactorial. Uh, there is no one answer for it. However, there are some key um, grand issues surrounding, surrounding that. Number one is the, the poverty that exists within a large number of African-American communities. When you're, when you're, when you're, a product of poverty, you're a product of what you talked about, which is necessity. And that necessity plays out in certain terms of how we, one, view what we need to do, and two, how we execute what we need to do to, to, to satisfy whatever need that is. So when you're talking about, I had a client one time uh, who was charged with uh, stealing gas from a, from a, uh, a train engine. The prosecutor uh, this was a felony charge. He's looking at, at serious time on this. The and, and I talked to, to my client. I said, well, why did you steal gas, gas from, from a train engine? He's like, well, I was a conductor. I lost my job. I got five kids. I was trying to get to work. Uh, I was trying to, uh, uh, to go to job, uh, uh, places to find a job. I ran out of gas, and I had no more money to buy gas. So I thought this was a perfect place where I can get some gas. I talked to the prosecutor. The prosecutor's saying, well, I'll give him uh, 10 years on this particular uh, issue. And I said, how could you possibly do that? With, he said, one, first, he's stealing gas. He's not, he's not ruining the world. And this, man, this, this prosecutor said to me, hey, if it was you or I in that position, we would never steal gas like that. And I, I had to stop him. I said, let me tell you right now, you have never been, you obviously have never been in a position where you had to struggle for your family. 
You have never, and, and you can't tell me what you would or wouldn't do when faced with ultimatums of essentially live or die in that particular instance. And so when you talk about the system, the system is, does not function with the, with the understanding of the reality of a different paradigm other than the kosher white American. And, and I see it play itself out every single day in a courtroom. Can I so, ask if the prosecutor was white? Absolutely, he was white. Can I ask a question to the lawyers and future lawyers in the room? Do you guys think that the justice system today in America and how it treats um, first-time and juvenile offenders also affects that? Because it seems like people who start in the system stay in the system. Like the, the system is based on punishment and not trying to figure out a way to get people into a better situation once yeah, they leave. It's a matter of perpetuity. I've, I've actually yeah. heard, I've, um, one of our, my classes, we had some juvenile prosecutors, actually we had a juvenile prosecutor and a public defender come and, come and talk to us. And they had some very different outlooks on how the system works. But even the, the, um, the prosecutor was very, um, not, even, not reluctant to admit that if you get stuck in the cogs of the machine, it's, it's, it's hard to get out. Well, so and, part of that is that the Harris County system is in of itself as a machine. It's all it is. But the, on, the only thing I want to add to the criminal part that we've not talked about, and I think this is specific for sure to the black community, is there is a high occurrence of people with mental illnesses. And as a community, we don't properly diagnose, treat, acknowledge, and respect those illnesses of what they do. Um, and I, I think... Well, y'all don't. I do it every day. Okay, well, uh, thank you, Dr. Rod. Uh, but for the rest of us, we never <laughs> know that shit. And I think uh, that, that, it, that, that is... I can't speak for any of, the, any of the group but us, but as a black community, I do not think we respect mental illness the way we should. I think we shun it or we ignore it. And there is a lot of, of, of people in the criminal justice system that are there in some ways because, because of their mental illness. And, and also, mental illnesses is treated a lot in this community by calling the police instead of calling health, health professionals. That's what I'm saying. So we don't, but, we, but you we have to, we don't treat it. Because, no, that, because simple, I'm just saying, because involuntary commitment laws. That person being put in yeah. jail can, versus can, yeah. can I, somebody Can I speak to that? Absolutely. That's one of the fundamental problems that libertarians have with the war on drugs. Is, speak uh, to it. Is, you know, you have a substance, you're not hurting anyone, whether it's cocaine, it's meth, it's it's marijuana. It doesn't. It doesn't matter what the hell it is. If you're high in the back of your house doing whatever the hell you you want to do, it, it. I don't think it fundamentally matters as long as you don't hurt anyone. Agreed. Yeah. Opposing drugs should be off limits. Especially oftentimes when the when you get arrested and the, the process is the punishment, and then you, when you uh, do that, you have a criminal record, and that can prevent you from advancing in the world. And um, you know, it's it's a real a real issue, and it, it keeps people from from you know. Advancing and, and see, this is why I'm disappointed with you dudes, man. You guys don't, you guys don't take the carrots, man. Why didn't you guys tell this majority black audience that one of the standard bearers for the libertarian ideal, Ron Paul, was the first, the first public figure to stand out against the war on drugs back in the '80s? Even when, when liberals and other Republicans were, were, were you know, staunchly opposed to it, he, he stated his opposition based on the fact that it was a de facto war against minority people. But no one gives libertarians they do. Well, I just want to put that and, out. And, and, you know, uh, it, it probably would have been a better move to do with that. Uh, it's kind of the cliche libertarian position, you know, war on Reach drugs against the war on drugs. <laughs> but, I mean, it, it, it's so true. I mean, if you... You look at like marijuana prohibition when it was first passed, and at the time was predominantly used by minority communities. And if you take that entire market and you push it underground, 
and you make it a criminal enterprise, and then you, uh, that leads to mass incarceration, which leads to the separation of families. Like it's a recipe for disaster, and we're feeling the effects. And, and I think that that, uh, like the war on drugs is one thing where there's definitely a solution to the problem. Like I think a lot of times uh, with, uh, you know, uh, certain things, like people don't really feel, it may feel like too antagonistic, or like people don't know the right, like they're they're upset and they're angry and they see these people getting killed for no reason, and they they you know have to express that and they don't necessarily sometimes or sometimes the impression is that they don't know how to channel that into a productive means to solve a problem, and I think that uh, if we can we can look at some of these real things like poverty that is the number one thing like police patrol poor areas more than they patrol suburbs and they're going to arrest more people on their patrols. And so, you know, that is, that is uh, something you can fight against. That is something that there's a clear goal that you can unite with people to tackle. And uh, it's something that can unite and not, you know, divide. Well, uh, Daniel, I couldn't put it better myself, so I appreciate uh, those words. Crystal Washington uh, said, prostitution should not be illegal. It's a victimless crime. Second. I think that all, uh, all hoes have to eat. And they should be able to be well fed too. Um, I think, uh, guys, we're, we're wrapping up at this point. Uh, I want to give out a shout out to our Black Magic of the Week, which is uh, Miss Pat McGrath. Uh, she, we talked about last week Kylie Jenner being on the cusp of being a uh, billionaire. This uh, black woman has actually reached that uh, particular line with her makeup line. Uh, it's Pat McGrath Labs is now valued at $1 billion due to a couple of different investment partnerships. Um, she launched in 2016 and has become a popular staple at Sephora. Uh, their makeup sales have reached top-selling SKU status within two years. Uh, her social media presence has more than 30 billion impressions and is known to start new beauty trends. She's been in the beauty industry for more than 20 years. The Vogue editor-in-chief referred to her as the most influential makeup artist in the world. Well done to Miss Pat McGrath. You are black magic. Now, it has come to that time where we must bid you fellas adieu. Kyle, Daniel, it has been a pleasure and an honor to have you sit with us here in the gauntlet. I Yo. think you held up well under the pressure. Uh, Thanks for inviting me. No, absolutely. And we hope to have you and more of your ilk on this show uh, <laughs> soon. Ilk. Ilk. That's a good word. That's right. Uh, but it's been, it's been an honor and pleasure. I hope we didn't uh, treat you too bad. And I hope uh, it doesn't deter you from coming back on the show. I know. It's, just, it's blood and water now. This is great. Awesome. So for all of you guys who uh, love the show, like the show, make sure you share the show. We are on Instagram. We're on Facebook. We have our website. Uh, on Instagram, it's at Gents Podcasting. Um, if you're going to the website where we have blog entries that we put in, where we have uh, B-roll aside issues that we're talking about uh, after the show, pre-show, we're, we're building everything out. Uh, it's www.gents.com podcast.com g-e-n-t-s podcast.com please make sure we're trying to grow this we're trying to make this uh bigger than life and make this a reality for everybody um and reach as many lives as we can with intelligent conversation with a twist of humor about it um intelligence is what we do intelligence are who we are and we hope to see you next time thank you Jeez. hey man thanks guys that was fun.